Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson for September 6th, 2007. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by Nerds on Site. Looking to grow your IT service business? Find out how Nerds on Site can help. Visit IWantToBeANerd.com. It's time for Security Now, and we're in September already. Steve Gibson. The year is waning, fall is on its way, and the bugs are out of your house. I'm back in the house and hopefully breathing pure air. I'm not really sure. They say they mix the the, the problem is that the uh, this Vicane, which is the name the the commercial name of the gas. I think Dow produces it. Um, well, it's they odorless. have a spotless track record, so I think you should. Yeah. <laughs> nothing yeah. to worry about. Nothing to worry about in terms of pesticides. <laughs> um, it's odorless and colorless, so you wouldn't know oh. if you were, you know, breathing a neuro, a potent neurotoxin. That's nice. <laughs> um, but they, but they deliberately mix in um, tear gas, which you certainly do know if you're oh, wow. breathing. Oh, that's smart. It, yeah, and and that way, you know, you you if you happen to walk into a house, I mean, it's not easy to walk into a house that's got po- no notices posted all over the walls and right. it's under a tent. But uh, you know, you would immediately know that something was wrong. That's so, what they do with uh, LNG, right? They, it's odorless, it, but they exactly. Yeah. Well, that's encouraging, anyway. Yeah, so we have no more bugs here. So I haven't seen any, as a matter of fact. In fact, th- this area geographically has a serious spider problem. And so I don't know that I had any termites, but boy, do I know that I had spiders. <laughs> and uh, they're not moving around anymore. So How do they clear out? So that's interesting, because I, I thought they were using poisons that had, this has now become the bug report, but I thought they were using <laughs> poisons that had a short half-life, but I'm sure tear gas does not. So I wonder they must they must clear it out heavy duty right? Well, yeah. In fact, it, it, it's a three day process. You you exit your home in the morning. They put the tent over and then fill it with this gas. It's it spends twenty four hours in that condition. Then they remove the tent, open all the windows. Oh, that's good. Vent it right it, out of the environment. Exactly. <laughs> in fact. It's funny because it's heavier than air. That is, the Vicane is, is it settles to the ground. So they also put some fans in your home to keep your, your air stirring around. And, and one of the homeowners during one of these, these prep meetings was, was saying, well, you know, what about if I'm like living at a home below one that's been fumigated and then you take the tent off and all the Vicane pours down the hill into my home? And, you know, the poor Terminix guys roll their eyes and say, well, lady, you know, just exhale. (laughs) They live with it. Yeah. I wonder what. As a matter of fact, that's one thing that I felt good about was these poor guys. I mean, they're they're in this Vicane 
environment all the time. So yeah. I'm figuring, well, you know, if if they're if they're clearing it out and they they, they do go in with sniffers, they right. say to make sure that they they get you know no readings. Wow. And uh, it, the, the original label said it had to be as low as five parts per million. Um, and now they've changed it to one part per million. And wow. then the guy said, he said, oh, yeah, but we always get zero. And I'm thinking, huh? I hope that meter's working. <laughs> zero. <laughs> uh, if you get zero. How do you get zero anything? at all. Maybe it's just <laughs> yeah. stuck on zero. Yeah. Um, let's get to uh, security. Uh, oh, uh, Enough, enough but, of pesticides, although I but, find this fascinating. <laughs> but uh, we probably should talk about security. First of all, we, any, uh, any uh, errata addenda? Oh, I've got a ton of things, Leo. Okay, first of all, top of this uh, episode, I wanted to suggest a change in our format from now on. During my reading of of email, incoming email, uh, I ran across sort of a grumbly note. Actually, it was grumbly phrased from one of our listeners saying, essentially, actually pretty much, why don't you guys drop this artificial distinction <laughs> between the Q&A and the mailbag episodes and just call the even episodes, oh, and he's, he's grumbling about mod four and a student like our equations, uh, just call the even episodes listener feedback, whether they're questions or their comments. That makes sense. And, well, and, and I, I actually liked it because I have been having trouble like sorting out questions and comments. And so, for example, many of these that we're going to start our show with this week, I actually found two weeks ago when I was only looking for comments and not questions. So it's it hasn't really functioned well at my end. And, and frankly, also, so many people have written saying they love the Q&A episodes. I think we really end up with a nice mix because the Q&A episodes allow us to have you know, spend an hour talking about all kinds of different things, whereas the odd episodes are, you know, like generally single topic or a low number of topics at least where we're focusing in more depth. So I really like that. So, you know, and if it turns out that we we tackle some big issue that that needs multiple parts, well, we'll just drop a, a feedback for that one if we need to do, you know, several hours in a row. So, you know, we'll give ourselves some freedom. But from now on, no more distinction, Mr. Grumbly, between... <laughs> Between the uh, Q and A's and the and the uh, listener feedback, you know the mail, the so-called mailbag, they're just all listener feedback episodes, and we're doing number twenty-three today. Well, we thank you, Mister Grumbly, for a good suggestion. Mister Grumbly, it, it evolved security now. Yes. Um, okay. Big correction to what I assumed incorrectly and have since verified last week. I assumed that the fact that Verisign would sell you three of their tokens, fob, dongles, uh, whatever we call them, deals, meant that you could simultaneously register multiples, and you can't. Oh. Well, why did they sell you three, then? I I don't know. Hmm. Um, One of our listeners, actually a a, a very courteous, Walter Soldier-er, I think is how I pronounce his name, uh, he provided me with the name of the guy at VeriSign, an email address, who's in charge of the whole PIP technology program. And I, so I, I shot – his name is Gary Crawl at VeriSign. I sent Gary a piece of email saying, hey, I really was really glad to get your name and email. I'm told you're the guy who would know this. 
is it in fact the case that it's possible to register multiple tokens, as the word Gary uses, although on the site they use the word credential, and this is the thing that we've been calling, you know, the PayPal fob or dongle or token or whatever. Right. So, and he said, oh, that's an interesting idea, but no. <laughs> but no. <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice try. <laughs> and I mean, and he referred to many late nights. So I have the feeling that he's like really the guy on the front line of the technology. And he explained that it would require a substantial change, you know, like new database format update and things to, as he put it, to bind more than one token at a ah, time to the account. Right. So I wanted to correct. I mean, it, people were really excited about this, as a, as was I. And, and, and Gary did promise to add it to his list of possible updates. But I didn't get the sense that it would be happening anytime soon. All right. Good to know. So, Good to know. So, yes. Um, also, I did mention the um, the combination lock padlock gizmo uh, last week, and that I had ordered two. They both came. I was going to crack one open to see, you know, what it what it looked like in terms of how difficult it would be to uh, to work around the padlock. Um, I really like the device. However, it is conspicuously larger than actually larger than I expected it to be from the photos on their site and certainly larger than a so-called thumb drive. This is this is a I would call this a large middle finger drive. <laughs> okay. Uh, is that in terms of length? Yes. Yeah. Um because and, and you know when you think about it you really do need it needs more panel surface in order to be able to host a five keypad where they put zero and one together and two and three together and so forth. Right. So you have five combination buttons. Then you've got a sort of a initiate button that, that shows a padlock, um, I mean, a, a, a key on it. And then other little icons that light up when it's doing different things. So, I mean, this thing, it's big, but it, I have to say, I think it's pretty cool. I mean, if you have an application where, again, you'd like to store either one or two gig of data in a fashion which is not going to be easily read. For example, if, you know, it's around the house and you don't want your kids to, to get it or, a, you know, a coworker or so forth. I mean, this thing, it, it's by Corsair, C-O-R-S-A-I-R, -S and they call it the, the padlock. Right. Um, right. Uh, the flash padlock. So, you know, it's neat, but it is it is big. It's not a thumb anymore. It's like I said, more like a long middle finger. All right. You know, and, uh, and these things are getting smaller and smaller. So if size is an issue that there may be some other choices. Right. And you put TrueCrypt on it. It's just as secure. Right. And speaking of USB dongles, Sony, as you may have heard, Leo, has done it again. Oh, no. Yes, they have. They have. They've got a a USB dongle that has a thumbprint reader or a fingerprint scanner of some form on it. Remember that we talked about Sandisk having one before. Right. Unfortunately, Sony's has software which includes <laughs> a root kit. They can't stay away from it, can they? Ah. Uh. They, you know, they're, uh, su uh, they're suing the company that did the uh, root kit, the original root kit. Oh, it's been a big mess. Yes, yeah. so you're right. Sony's suing them because, of course, they they got in a lot of hot water for right. doing this with their. As we talked about it back in, I guess it was '05, their the original Sony root kit scandal. Well, now they've done it again. That when you install this software, it 
it installs a subdirectory underneath the win the main Windows directory, which hides all the fi- it hides itself that is the subdirectory itself and all the files it contains and executable content. So and it hides it from the Windows API using rootkit technology wow. so that and it's confirmed that sc- virus scanners and malware scanners will not find oh. things that are in there. So this is their they 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 keep coming back to this idea that the best way to be secure is to be rootkit. Oh, I, I mean, it is just another. Oh, well, we know what a bad idea it is, and yeah. remember that last time they did this with their, their with the Sony CD stuff, it took about two weeks for malware to be written that would leverage the Sony rootkit in order to hide itself using that technology and so it's not doesn't doesn't take much imagination to imagine although this is of course being a usb thumbprint dongle that's going to be far less market penetration than there was of you know any seed you know audio music cd from sony well and you're buying a secure dongle so presumably you know it's a little different than sneaking this out of your system through a cd through like like for example on exactly on a music right, Leo, CD, right any consumer audio right, CD right. so you know but again they have, apparently have not learned their lesson and hard to believe hard to believe just unbelievable and again the, part of the reason this was so easily utilized by hackers at last time was it was really had a big flaw it was very badly written uh, any file of a certain type file name may, was was all of a sudden hidden. Let, right. Maybe they didn't make the same mistake, but I'm not going to count on it. <laughs> we don't know exactly how dangerous it would be, I guess. And then lastly, I wanted to mention that without reading endless individual emails, so many people agree with us, Leo, about PayPal. I mean, that is to say about the negative aspect of this weird, you've got to register with a checking account yeah. in order to become authenticated, yeah. then there's no way to, I mean, I got all kinds of uh, email from people saying yes, 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 and in fact, some saying that due to the fact that this is a default that cannot be changed, that is that PayPal will will force you to manually override their deducting from your checking account, one guy did in fact have a fraudulent um, transfer made and just went through all kinds of hell trying to get his money back. Basically, uh-huh. pay, PayPal never was able to do it because it was gone. It was out of his checking account and they were not insuring it, but he had a third party insurer of the transaction oh, that man. ended up, he ended up being able to, to, you know, get restitution from, but it was a nightmare. What so, a I mean, I, I have read a bunch of horror stories and and corroborations of like why is you know it, it this just seems like a bad and dumb thing for PayPal to be doing default wise. No kidding. So finally, um, I got as far as I know this is the first at least the first one I've seen a report from a nerds on site nerd who used Spinrite, um, and I didn't really pick up on it at first. Um, he said, P- "Please, pa-, his name is Raul Velez." And and Raul said, please pass this to the feedback section of Spinrite. So he must have sent email to my office, and then they, and they forwarded it to me. He, so all he said was, my name is R- Raul, and I am a nerd. And I thought, <laughs> well, okay, you know, I am too. So nice of you to just step up and admit it, Raul. So he said, I've been a nerd since my retirement from the Navy three years ago. 
I thought, okay, well, he's a, a, a late nerd bloomer. But um, <laughs> so he says, yesterday I received a call from a hotel in the Raleigh area that their server was down. I went in, took a look, and after talking to the manager about what they have done and what they and what they were heading, he wrote, or where they were heading. He said, anyway, he said, I decided that it was time to give Spinrite a chance. The software ran for almost seven hours. At the end, the server rebooted and voila, wow. it was working again just in time for the morning checkouts. Wow. The drive has to be replaced, but we've been able to buy some time and back up critical files that otherwise would have been unavailable and would have had to have been recreated. Needless to say, the front desk people were loving me. It's a great thing we have a site license. And that's when I go, ah, this is a nerd. nerd. This is a nerds on site nerd. (laughs) So he says, it's a great thing we have a site license for this. By the way, I also own my own personal license of the software. Oh, that's neat. And and this is signed Raul E. Nerd in Cary, North Carolina. So we had a neat, we had a combination of a Spinrite success and a nerds on site story. Very nice. Well, as long as we're talking about Nerds on Site, might I interject here a little commercial for Nerds on Site? Please do, Leo. Explain, explain what this is, because I think people are going, what are, what are they talking about? Nerds on Site, <clears throat> actually, it's kind of hard to explain what it is. I'll be honest with you. I haven't done a very good job all along. Uh, best thing to do is go to IWantToBeANerd.com. If you are somebody like Raul, somebody who is in the business of uh, IT, helping people, you can join the International nerd squad the nerd team of nerds on site you become part of a growing team of technology specialists Uh, there are all sorts of benefits to it you'll save time and money you're still your own boss but you get their marketing their brand recognition the support you get training Uh, it's for it's for independent contractors who want to be in business for themselves but not by themselves so you focus on what you love to do the most Uh, not just the you know day-to-day burdens of running a business i wish there were nerds on site for podcasters to be honest with you they operate all over the world in fact i understand they just added singapore so it's canada u.s mexico england australia south africa bolivia singapore go to i want to be a nerd.com find out it might be in your if you're not on that list in your country too they have over 250 competencies in their university of nerdology so you can hone your skills everything ranging from systems architecture to design to software development even on-site IT and desktop support in Soho Residential IT Services. If you're a nerd, you want to grow your business, you want some help doing so, please go to IWantToBeANerd.com and register for a nerds-only meeting in your area today. Not only, by the way, do you get uh, you get a whole toolkit, including, as Steve mentioned, a site license uh, to uh, Spinrite, but also it's uh, Nerds on Site is now an authorized Astaro solution provider. So if you've heard us talk about the Astaro Security Gateway, uh, on this show, Astaro products and services are now available through Nerds on Site as well. In fact, you also can get training for Astaro. Be a free, uh, you get free Astaro certified administrator and Astaro certified engineer training for nerds. How do you like that? So this is a very, very, you know, and they they partner with others, but uh, this is a very, very useful skill. Nerds on Site. I want to be a nerd dot com. We thank them for their support of security now. Shall we talk? Are you ready to go to our uh, our questions? Absolutely. Let's we do have it. A t- 12 fantastic 
questions. Thanks to our fantastic listeners. Starting with Justin Teal. He has a way not to use WEP or WPA. We're talking about wireless security here. Wow. He says, yeah, wow. I like the idea. He says, rather than use WEP or WPA, he just turned off wireless broadcast. That lets, uh, that's what, that's what broadcasts, is the, broadcasts the name of the network. And he uses MAC address filtering to only allow his machines. He says, isn't that sufficient? For someone to get on my network, first, they'd have to know it's there. Second, they'd have to spoof my MAC address. I'm assuming it's enough protection because I don't know of any way for someone to get to the name of the network or my MAC address. Steve, would you like to enlighten him? <laughs> well, Justin. Okay. okay. This is, but I, I'm glad Justin asked this because I'll tell you what, this is a very common, and I still go to places that say, we need your MAC address before we'll let you on our network. And I just, I have to laugh at them. Yep. Yep. Because, you know, if, well, for example, you know, following up them saying that, all you would have to do would be to turn on any of the many and multiple available sniffers. Cane enable is a good choice. See, exactly. Yeah. See any of the MAC addresses which are flying through the air and go, oh, there's one. And then just <laughs> I'll use clone. That. Yeah, you, yeah, exactly. Clone that MAC address for your own, and you're automatically given permission to use the network. And it's not just the MAC addresses flying through the air, the SSIDs are flying through the air. That's exactly right. Even though you're not broadcasting it um, in beacon mode, you are able to see the SSID as part of the as, of, as the protocol in the wireless packets. So, Justin, I'm afraid to tell you that that what you've done has a benefit, but not the benefit you're looking for. The benefit it has is it will prevent people from inadvertently using your wireless network. We see this all the time with, with you know, for example, in, a, in apartment buildings or in condo complexes or in any situation where you've got, you know, many times people will turn on their windows and look at the available wireless networks, and you'll see five or six of them at different signal strengths. Well, um, you know, you sort of choose which one you want to join if they don't have security. The point is that it's often inadvertently the case that somebody would be using yours without your permission and even without their knowledge just because their system would have said oh look there's there's open wi-fi well turning off the beacon pre uh, prevents it from being seen in that mode where it's just looking at all the available networks and turning on mac address filtering will certainly prevent their system from inadvertently connecting to your wireless access point but anybody nefarious who actually still wanted to get onto your network could still do so easily as we just said um, all you have to do is sniff the traffic the traffic shows the the, the SSID that is the name of your um, access point and the MAC addresses of all of the devices that are flying through the air. So it's very easy for someone to to use an existing MAC address and be authenticated and authorized on your network. So um, it is it will prevent people from using it by mistake, but it certainly isn't bulletproof if somebody wanted to get on your network without your knowledge or permission, and they certainly still could. The only way to prevent that is through one of the encryption technologies. And of course, WEP still has problems. Now WEP is so badly broken that someone with the WEP, the latest WEP cracking tools, which are again, freely downloadable, 
and available on the internet. It takes them about a minute to um, to 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 crack the to crack the web key on a web encrypted network. Only WPA is safe, and any version of WPA is safe enough. So that's kind of the bottom line. There is one thing that works: WPA, yep. and, and that's it. And uh, that's pretty easy to remember. David uh, of Uf- David Johnston of Eufaula, Alabama says, I, like many of your listeners, am the tech guy for my family and friends. He heals, heals many an ill PC. He actually wants to talk about virus scanning and removal. To scan an infected PC drive, I have a standalone beige box PC running Windows 2000 and Symantec AV10 that I'll install the infected drive in as a slave. I then scan the... I presume the master drive for viruses and spyware. So how effective and safe is this? I've cleaned many drives. I've never noticed any ill effects on my PC. Oh, I see. He takes the, um, I get it. No, he takes the infected drive and puts it in as a slave and then scans it. I wonder how likely it is that a virus will migrate from the slave drive to the master drive. Thanks for the help and keep up the great work. Interesting solution. What's interesting about this is that what he's done is he's avoided the possibility of viruses on the slave drive being live. Okay. You know, the, the, the problem is if he were booting that drive and then trying to scan it on itself, right. the problem is you could have things that have, you know, anti, anti-virus scan technology. But by pulling the drive out of its normal live mode, sticking it in essentially as a data drive, not as a bootable drive, none of the code on that slave drive ever has a chance to run. So nothing malicious has a chance to, to, to ever get going. Now, he is assuming that, the, 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 as he calls it, his beige box, his scanning machine, he's assuming that that is clean and doesn't have anything bad on it. You certainly wouldn't want it to have something bad on it that would then be able to clone itself over and jump onto any drive that was inserted. And certainly, that's historically, that's been sort of a propagation strategy for for viruses of the past when but remember he can't, he can't cross infect from the slave drive the one he's put into the master drive it's exactly. not active exactly and and that's the key there is you know he needs to, he needs to be conscious of the fact that it could go the other way right. that if something did get infected on his beige box pc that he's using for scanning that master drive could potentially infect the slave but his question really was can can anything on the slave get over to the master drive and given what he's talked about i don't see any way for that to happen so i think it is a it's a it's a neat idea to have a you know to to scan a drive that is not running um so that it doesn't have a chance to protect itself I mean, it's a lot of work because you have to pull the drive and put it in, in the beige box. A lot of people will do this with a CD. They'll make a boot CD, which can't be reinfected. You can, right. make, you know, that's clean. The drawback to a boot CD is that uh, it, it's not always up to date. You'd have to make it fresh every time to make sure it has all the updates. I think um, FProt, the, the folks at Frisk, have software for making DOS-based boot scanners, and of course, there's plenty of Linux scanners too. Yep. Um, but then you'd have to always update it, which could be a pain. A listener named Dale has a blast from the past question. <laughs> Episode 32, <laughs> uh, ways back, he taught, we talked about Bogon space and listed a bunch of IP ranges that are in the Bogon space. And, is he talking about Bogus? 
No, Bogon. It's called Bogon. Okay. Yeah, Bogon. Uh, they're non-routable. So if five dot space is bogus, how come Hamachi, which uses five dot, is uh, workable? Five five dot lives in Bogon space. Yeah. So okay, let, let's back up a little bit. And since this has been a blast from the past, uh, review from the past, the the internet has a bunch of blocks of IPs which have even today still not been used and in fact there are it's a surprising number of ips that are completely unusable so um and and i for example the four dot space is in use but the five dot space that is to say any ip that begins with five dot and then its three other components has has never in history been used so and, and there there are many other similar um, so-called class A networks that is various um, uh, numbers be- the, at the start of the IP address so something dot something dot something dot something dot something um, that that first number has never actually appeared in use they're called non-routable because if you happen to drop a packet onto the internet at a given location as as we know from from talking about how the net routing works in um in episodes in the past a, a router would go oh here's a you know a uh um a packet that begins with four dot and it would it would have tables routing tables that tell it which direction the four dot network is in and so it would it would it would route that packet out of the proper interface toward another router that would have a similar table that would tell it where to forward that packet to. So the packet hops from router to router heading toward its destination. Well, if you dropped, for example, a five-dot packet onto any router on the Internet, the router would say, huh? It has no instructions about where to send that packet because no five dot IP addresses exist. That that's a and somebody owns that network space. I think all of the space is, is owned by various people or maybe just never assigned by by the main assigning authority. But still, the point is that there would be no routing table entry telling the router where to send that packet. So Dale's question is, if that's the case, how does Hamachi do this? Well, what Hamachi does, um, Hamachi, of course, is a, is, a, is a peer-to-peer networking technology that uses VPN-like technology to, to create um, sort of ad hoc peer-to-peer networks. The, what Hamachi is doing is it's actually using the normal routable IPs, that is the the normal IPs that the internet is currently using and which it's and which Hamachi's users currently have assigned. It's using those IPs to actually move the packets from machine to machine as required. But but once the packet arrives, it sort of it, it it's it takes the envelope off of that packet and that's where the the five dot addressing is. So to, to to say this differently, you the the machine that you're talking to has a packet with a five dot address which is non-routable. 
What hamachi does is it it puts a packet around it. It encapsulates that non-routable five-dot packet in a standard internet routable packet with the destination IP of the other Hamachi machine where this packet is bound. So that packet it puts on the internet, which is routed to that target machine. When that machine gets it, it takes that wrapper packet off of the interior packet, which is addressed to the five-dot address of that target machine. So essentially... The the, the 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 packets that Hamachi is routing are internally using this unroutable five dot space, but externally they're using standard internet addresses. That makes sense. The other unroutable spaces, the Bogon space uh, IP addresses, are one ninety two dot one sixty eight. Well, of course, those are those are private IP spaces like 192.168 and then 10 dot space of course are those considered and then, bogon or not um well they're 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 really not bogon they're privately i mean they're, they're well known in use private Got private it. networks okay. as, as as opposed to but they I mean, they're not routable they've never they they can't be used uh, on the net publicly right. correct All right mark ryan of agassi bc canada has two factor authentication system he'd like to share with us First of all, he says, thanks for the work you do to make the Internet a safer place to roam in. I've listened to all the Security Now podcasts, and the information you provide has helped me keep the computers of mine and my own running with fewer problems for years. He's owned a copy of Spinrite for about five years, and he says, I know it's one of the main reasons my computers have continued to run smoothly for years, one for about seven years with no reformatting. Wow. How often How often do you recommend running Spinrite? Uh, well... Um, I would say quarterly is probably often enough. Um, I would say maybe once a year is not often enough. We've run into many instances where people have run Spinrite and it's found lots of uncorrectable errors. It's certainly the case that had they run it more often, Spinrite would have worked with them to correct those before they became uncorrectable. So, I mean, it, it absolutely is preventative maintenance, and so quarterly is probably, you know, once every three months or maybe every four months, do it three times a year. And it wouldn't take seven hours if, if you do it all the time. No, it zooms right along when, right. It, when it's not, you know, stuck on a problem. If there's something wrong, that's when it starts to take a while. Just so, yep. because we, we often say, oh, it took th- that, that one that said three months. And I think that scares people off. It, that's only if there's a problem. That's only if you really need it. Right. And in fact, you, you know, it, it is interruptible. You can stop it. You're able yeah. to, to, to start it past uh, uh, the, the, the prior problem, if you don't care about it fixing something where it's stuck, you're able to kind of nudge it forward and say, okay, let's you know, get on with this. So right. there's all kinds of options while you're running it. Rob Hartvixen writes from Italy, and he's wondering... Oh, act, act, uh, we, we skipped the second oh, there's part more. of that. Oh, oh I, yeah. yeah, he mentioned the... Se- I'm sorry. <laughs> Two, I got so caught up in that, and I forgot to mention his two-factor authentication system he uses. His brokers introduced what seems to be a pretty slick system, uh, a card with a unique eight-character ID number and 224 columns on this card containing three random alphanumeric characters. To use the card, I have to register it to my account, and then when I log into my broker, I enter my username and password, and then uh, the site gives me two numbers corresponding to the columns on the cards. So you you look down the column and the, along the row, I guess, and enter the two sets of three characters from the matching columns, and now I have access to my account. So how secure do you think that is? It's better than a 
password alone, but what are the weaknesses? Well, it's a neat idea. It it combines. It sort of it combines something you know and something you have because you're being prompted by the site that wants you to log in for information that that only you will have. He talked about the card having a unique eight-character ID. So clearly, the card was algorithmically um, created based on that ID number so that back on the server, they know the ID number associated with his account, which is the ID number on his card. That allows them to know what his card contains. So then he's he's randomly asked to to essentially read out part of the data on the card. I, we mentioned this kind of approach briefly a couple months ago, and I wanted to bring it up again because I think it is really kind of cool. It has the advantage of being extremely inexpensive. For example, in this case, I think his broker set him up with a card, but there are systems where you print your own index you 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 know you when when you're signing up it it gives you a page you print it you fold it you stick it in your wallet and this thing has essentially a ton of pseudo random data it's it's pseudo random because it was algorithmically generated not truly random um, otherwise, the server would have to maintain an exact copy of of of, of the of, of what it was that you were carrying. And of course, pseudo random is no weakness as long as you don't know what the algorithm was to right. generate it, and as long as you don't as no as no bad guy has the eight character ID number, and the eight character ID number is not part of this this challenge response handshake, so that can't be known either. So it's really cool because is it as, better? Do you think than the dongle, or I mean, it's is it as good? I should say as the dongle um, or the fob. Uh, I think one of the things I like about it is it is it has no batteries. Yeah, you carry <laughs> in your wallet. It's cheap. You exactly. You can carry your wallet. It's cheap. You could Xerox it. Now you might say, "Wait a minute, that's a security weakness." If somebody briefly got your wallet right. and Xeroxed the card, right. now they've got a copy of it. Now they, if they had your username and password, they can log on as you. So that's a problem. Unlike the dongles and fobs, which are you know you can't Xerox those. We don't have you know teleporters that can do matter duplication at this point. So right. so there's a weakness. But on the flip side, uh, you know it's inexpensive and it's going to give you very good security. So one one vulnerability would be that somebody could record one transaction. That is, they they if they were monitoring through a man-in-the-middle attack of some sort, and we're assuming that this would all be over secure socket layer connection with valid certificates and everything, so, so that would be ruled out. But if there were something, for example, on your computer, uh, upstream monitoring your screen and keyboard, for example, that were that was capturing your transaction, there is the possibility for a replay attack where something sees you log on, sees the numbers you're being given from the server, sees the alphanumerics that, that you return. If, because it would if, match every time, wouldn't it? Exactly, because yeah. the, the data on the card There's is the static. Flaw. There's the flaw right there. It, yeah, the data on the card is static, whereas the dongle is a constantly changing number that never repeats. So if you had a man in the middle, all you'd have to do is watch. 
Yep. Uh, but still, still pretty know, good. A- absent that, it's certainly it's, it's less expensive than hardware, and it's it's really it is certainly stronger than just a username and password because what you're being asked to provide changes every time. Very interesting. Now to Rob Hartvixen, writing from Italy. He's wondering about rotten bits. Hi. <laughs> I just listened to uh, Security Now 104 and your discussion about bit rot on Windows uh, and using SpinRight to correct it. If I understand correctly, SpinRight will deal with bit rot. Doing a complete drive reformat is not going to give me better performance over just running SpinRight. Oh, that's interesting. What if he's willing to erase and reformat? Is that just as good? Um, Well, I wanted to bring it up real quickly because we had a couple questions that were asking similar things. Um, A reformat is Except for the areas of the drive that involve the file system, where you know the the directory and 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 bitmaps and so forth, the manager that manage the contents of the file system, a format is only doing a read pass. Given that you do a long format and not a quick format, most people these days just do a quick format because a long format is really a long format. I mean, it'll take a long time to format the drive. All it's doing, though, during that long time is reading all the sectors. Well, that's better than not doing that. But Spinrite bumps the it ups the ante one level because Spinrite in its normal mode is reading, writing, reading, writing, and reading the drive. So it's actually flipping all the bits twice, looking for any problems being reported by the drive, and giving the drive then the chance to recognize that there's a trouble sector that that it should map out of use. So SpinWrite will give you um, a better result than just reforming the drive, but reformatting the drive is better than nothing. Right. Okay, cool. Jeffrey in Columbia, Maryland, is ready to defrag. A while back, you are talking about some of the free programs you use. One of the programs you pointed out was Spacemonger. The other was a free hard drive re- defragging program. What was the name of that defragging program you recommend? He uses DiskKeeper Professional. His license is up, and he wants something free that works just as well. Is there a free one? I don't remember mentioning that. No. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to let Jeffrey in Columbia know that... It wasn't a free one I mentioned. It was a good one that I mentioned. And and actually, I now have two favorites. Um, I think I, I referred to Vopt. Um, right, v, right. Yeah, Vopt is, is very nice. It's at version 8 now. Um, however, I've started using one called Perfect Disk, and I bought it because I was very impressed with it. Um, it will do something that Vopt won't, which is it will defrag the the so-called metadata what i was talking about just a minute ago uh, when i was talking about the bitmaps and and the the directories and things nothing is able to move those cuz those are locked by the system while the volume is in use perfect perfect disk is able to do a pre-boot defrag of those and for example to defrag your your swap file, which is, is, is another area that is, cannot be moved around while you're running the swap file, running on the, on the drive with the swap file. So I like Perfect Disk and I like Vopt. And I also wanted to remind people, we got a bunch of other questions about what was that thing that allows you to see where your drive has gone uh, or wh- yeah, you know, how space much monger. space yeah, and that yeah. space monger. Yeah. So, I want, so I wanted to reiterate the name of, of that for people who are asking that question as well. And there's a free so, version and there's a newer version, which is no longer free, but we, we like the free version. 
Oh, Spacemonger 1.4 is the last free one uh, that that Sean wrote, and it's all I use. He, he, I mean, he his new one does all kinds of wacky things, but much more than Spacemonger. And for me, Spacemonger is enough. Yeah. And for uh, the Mac, there's a program that does that as well. I think it's called Drive Space X. Uh, that is also free. Um, is that it? Oh, now see, every time I do this, I I forget the name. <laughs> but there is a Mac program, and I. Yeah, but once again, forgotten the name. For some reason, I think it's Drive SpaceX. But uh, anyway, uh, good. No free defraggers unless you send us an email and tell us about one. Well, of course, you know, the, the Windows has one built in oh, under right. access- accessories yeah. and system tools is yeah, a defragger. Why is that? Yeah, and it is, it, the, the technology was licensed from DiskKeeper. It is a nice defragger, and that may be all you need. What I like is that, but, well, first of all, perfect. Perfect Disk does defrag the so-called metadata areas, which which nothing else will do because it does it as a boot time defrag. That is like a pre-boot defrag. Um, but Vopt and and Perfect Disk both do something else, and that is they look at the at the at the amount of use you're giving to the data and and arrange it for faster booting. So, for example, and, and again, Perfect Disk does an even better job than than Vopt, which is why I I bought Perfect Disk, even though I owned Vopt already. Perfect Disk looks at all the files that are used at boot time and moves them to the very front of the drive, and and also looks at the frequency of use files you don't use very often. It puts next files you modify sometimes. It puts in a big block after that. And then files that are being modified all the time, it puts right next to the free area. The beauty of that is that it tends to centralize your fragmentation, which minimizes head activity. And it means that subsequent defrags run much more quickly because the files that are changing often are the ones that are getting fragmented. And they're right next to the, to the unused area in the drive, allowing them to be re-defragged much more quickly. So it, it's, it's, my, it's really my current favorite right now is, is Perfect Disk. Good. Very cool. Uh, I had one question, says Dennis Jones in nearby Carlsbad. Nearby to you, Carlsbad, California. One question I had, he has about the PayPal security key, which I didn't hear an answer to, is how does the security key stay in sync? Because obviously PayPal has to have something that's generating the numbers at the same time. Generating a new key every 30 seconds requires the key to know what time it is within a second or two forever. Do they have clocks that accurate to put on the key, or is there some clever way of keeping the key and server in sync? That's a good question. It's a it's a neat question, and it's 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 cool because the answer is there is some window that the server allows for letting the keys clock and their the server's clock be out of sync. So again, because the key is based on a pseudo-random sequence generator, and the server has the the matching the matching um, serial number for the key, and and there's a database at Verisign or or wherever which which maps the key's serial number to the cryptographic key which is being used to generate the pseudo-random numbers. That means the server can tell what the key's number was 30 seconds ago, 
30 seconds before that, 30 seconds before that, and what it will be now, 30 seconds in the future, 30 seconds in the future, and 30 seconds further in the future. So that creates a window of which really can be as large as as somebody wants to allow it to be based on, you know, how long you want the key's um, current number to be valid in the face of some time drift. However, as soon as you give a number which is within the window, now the server knows within 30 seconds uh, range what time your key thinks right, it is. Right, right. So, so with every one of these accounts... Not only are, is it storing the serial number, but it's storing an offset from the, mo- from the most recent use of the key of, of, from, from where the key um, clock believes time is compared to the servers. And the, so every time you use the key, it relocks or resynchronizes the key's clock to the server's master clock to keep them from drifting too far out of sync. Very clever. It's really clever. Yeah. John Pierce posted this one in the GRC Security Now news group. Highly recommended, by the way. <laughs> he says, my PayPal and eBay accounts have secure passwords that is randomly generated using your site. Oh, he's using your the first 30 characters, I guess, from your uh, password generator. Because it's 64 characters, right? Yep. He says, I have to use my password manager to use them since there's no way to remember them. It's a bit of a pain for me, uh, but I do it. Uh, once I receive the PayPal security key, will I still need a huge password that's impossible to remember to be secure, or can I now use a relatively short, easily remembered password combining that with the key digits? It would seem logic dictates something short and sweet would be fine. However, I don't trust myself to consider all possibilities. He wants your opinion when security well, it's, is concerned. It's a great question. Um, so what he's saying is, you know, before I had the PayPal security key, that is to say given a, a two-factor authentication so that I, I have to have this thing in my possession, I was just using my username and password. Hmm. So now that I've got that, that is, I've got two-factor authentication, doesn't that mean that I'm depending less on the first factor, which used to be all he was depending upon? Now I've got two factors. So can I weaken the, the strength of the first factor because now I've got something even stronger than the first factor ever was, which is this thing that I'm in possession of, which is changing every 30 seconds. Mm. And I would say absolutely. That is, it is certainly the case that, that two-factor authentication allows him to weaken the first factor. Now, consider that, that he has a burden of he's been relying on an unremember, unmemorizable 30-character random text string that he got from GRC's passwords page. So what he's asking to do is, you know, couldn't I bring this thing down now to something I can remember so I don't have to use my password manager? And I would say absolutely. But here's the threat. The threat is that he loses control of his second factor. It is physical. Somebody could borrow it or make off with it and then what their then their challenge is since they've essentially got the second factor all they now have to crack is the first factor so you don't want to weaken it so so much that it would be possible to guess his username and password 
through you know traditional brute force uh, dictionary attack you know the, the the any of those reasons that we that he was using his thirty character nightmare password in the in in the first place because by somebody getting a hold of his second factor they've taken that completely out of the equation now he's that that he's only being protected by his first factor which needs to be strong enough to balance the possibility of him losing control of his security key so i mean practically i would say yes still you must practice safe single factor security under the assumption that somebody could get a hold of your second factor, that is, of your security key, but you don't have to go way overboard any longer with a 30-character bizarro password. Just do something that's not in a dictionary, that isn't prone to be brute force attack. So it needs to be long. It need, needs to combine you know, words, maybe a couple special characters, and something that's not going to be um, easily guessable. And then I th- really think you're okay. Yeah, I mean, the other issue, of course, is uh, that PayPal allows you to use your uh, password without the dongle, but then you have to go through some additional security questions. So if you weaken the password too much, I don't know, and then they go through the security questions, it seems like that might be that might be another kind of reason to have a Another way in, good yeah, point. Yeah. Uh, Michelle Thomas in Olney, Maryland, needs the URL. I need the URL. I was listening to episode 106 and heard you guys mention the VeriSign fob token key dongle thing, <laughs> but you didn't give us a link as to where we can get them. You talked about being able to order multiple ones that could all be tied together. Well, we've uh, destroyed that notion. Uh, yes. I went to the VeriSign PIP site, signed up for a PIP account. That's nice. It'll come in handy, but I really would like a, uh, a fob. She already has the PayPal token, which I got after you mentioned it last month. I like the uh, he or she. I like the VeriSign idea to have multiple so I can keep one in my purse, she. One uh, at work and one at home. And, yeah. Or he. Let's uh, uh, not be discriminating here. Uh, I'm not going to make any assumptions. So, first of all, we should say that, uh, as as Steve mentioned at the beginning of the show, that was an error. You, you can't get three and have them all be the same account. Correct. Each token is a separate account, right? Now, you know, I hadn't thought this through. I'm doing this on the fly here. But if you had multiple PIP accounts... Each single account associated with a different dongle, then we're back in the game, Leo. Um, no one says you can only have one. Well, many people so, have many open IDs. That's right. Well, exactly. So, so all you need to do is have. Oh, hey, that works. So you do do do. Verisign may not like this, but yes. <laughs> yeah. So you create multiple PIP accounts. You give and, and you, you know, give them like, you know, for example, I'm Steve Gibson dot pip dot dot com. So I would be Steve Gibson one dot pip dot 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 com. Steve Gibson two dot pip dot dot com and Steve Gibson three dot pip dot dot com. Each one associated with a different dongle. I then write a one, two and three on the back of my three Verisign dongles. Have one at home, one at the office. And when I want to authenticate, and instead of having a single authentication URL, now I have one that matches each dongle. But I've but no problem because I just give each of those PIP accounts the same data to authenticate myself. So we're back in the game. Okay, good. So good. Now yeah. we are recording now episode one oh eight. 
Michelle was listening to 106, where she was uh, unhappy that we she had no URLs. Right. In 107, <laughs> we talk about this explicitly, and the URLs are all in the show notes. So go to the show notes for one. It's a long URL. Are we to give it out? Right. I mean, yes. And, it, and then there's a bunch of funky ones. Now, here's the other catch: is that Michelle already knows this, Leo. Oh, be, because she's a loyal listener, and her and she's so heard she it by she, now. She's exactly, <laughs> exactly. So she said in her question, frustrated after listening to 106, and then she found that it was magically answered in episode 107, even before I read her question for episode 108. Excellent. Which is what she's listening to now. So everybody's happy. Now, we should and- say that the show notes um, are on your site, grc.com slash security now. Yes, under episode 107. And there are show notes for a lot of episodes. I'm just looking them up there. Wow. Starting with As the Worm Turns <laughs> in August 19th, 2005. Yep. That's episode one all the way up to episode 107, which will go up. Uh, it's not on right now because we're recording this early, but we'll go up any minute now, I'm sure. So just to de-confuse people who are, de-confuse whose eyes have, them. Yes. Have, just, have just been crossed by all uh, this. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a time thing. At the, at the top of this episode, I reported and corrected the mistake of, of my assumption that because VeriSign was, would allow you to purchase up to three dongles at once. Oh, and by the way, Leo, I have verified that you can get even more because I bought another three. Oh, wow. Just because I love them. I think they're cool. So now I have six <laughs> of those. You give them out as party favors? Uh, they're just neat. <laughs> um, uh, actually, I'm thinking maybe I'll use them for uh, with my own employees for some, yeah, uh, some fu- from future stuff, too. Yeah. So it's just very cool. So I, I corrected my assumption that you could... You could, as um, as the VeriSign guy puts it, bind more than one dongle at a time to a PIP account. But nothing prevents you from having multiple VIP PIP accounts associating one dongle with each and just, you know, putting in the URL, which you're able to create for yourself, put in the URL uh, with you know, like a, a one or two or three and write that on the dongle right. and then we've solved the problem you've got multiple dongles you can have she can have one in her purse you can have one at home one at work wherever you as many as you want them and just set up a separate account for each one and you're good to go that's easier obviously with a pip account than it would be say with a paypal or ebay account but uh because you only have want to have one paypal account exactly yeah, yeah. but pip it doesn't matter you can have as many as you want and we did confirm with the PayPal guy that it is only a single dongle for now. And uh, now that we know that they're using uh, VIP, the VeriSign identity protection technology for the back end, it probably won't be until they allow multiple uh, token bindings that it would be possible for PayPal to do that, too. Of course, they would keep their algorithm top secret because it, uh, it's probably tied to the ID in some way. And so they, they, you, there's no way you could use a dongle for your own purposes because there's no way you could regenerate those tokens programmatically. Well, and not only that, but you, you do get, oh, actually when you, in, in this case, you don't get any documentation, but I also got some secure ID dongles from VeriSign directly that, that use a different technology. They've got a constantly changing display. A little bar graph on one side has, is, is like it decreases to zero height and then the and then the number changes and i think it changes every 30 seconds so it's every 5 seconds 
the uh, a little square disappears to give you a warning of when the number is about to change. So that's simply based on time. But when you get those, you also get a CD with a set of XML files giving you the the cryptographic key associated with each of those. Huh. Now, as far as I know, they're still not documenting the technology. Well, they couldn't because but, that would – then you'd have something completely insecure. <laughs> well, no, it, it, because you would – there's no way of knowing from the outside without that XML file what the key is. Right. So they right. are providing that to you. Anyway, I'm going to do a little more research on this because, frankly, I would love to be able to use the dongles myself directly and not need to go through the VeriSign backend in order to make the technology go. So that's that's my next email to our to our VeriSign friend. Yeah, yeah. They can't they can't very they could they could show I guess the code. Well, well, and, and, and remember to, really. I mean, remember that the back of the key, the back of the fob, fob dongle doohickey. Uh, gizmo it's just a serial number that doesn't give you any information about what the cryptographic key is there's a database that they have that matches the serial number to the cryptographic key so so even knowing the serial number and knowing the algorithm wouldn't help you guess the next number because you would never know what that key was which is why i was wrong you wouldn't want to tie the serial number to your algorithm except internally in some exact secret way Jeff Schmidt traveling somewhere in Northern California. He wants to encrypt his laptop drive. He says, you briefly mentioned in uh, 106 the Hitachi Travel Star Discs with bulk data encryption. I know you've only got a thousand different subjects or tasks competing for your time, but for what it's worth, I vote for hearing more of your thoughts on this. What do you think? Well, you you like it, right? I, I very much like the it's idea. strong encryption, right? Yes. Well, it, it is. It is. It's Rheindahl AES encryption, which right. is state of the art. I mean, that's that is the good crypto technology to use. Um, uh, I should digress a minute. I was I, when we were talking about the passwords page. Um, I don't remember whether I mentioned. Oh, I think I did. It was it was the first part of last episode that I talked about having rewritten the algorithm yes. for the passwords page. Yes. Um, I submitted 16 megabytes of data to those security researchers who had decided that I didn't have enough entropy in my passwords. Well, they're happy now. Uh, I've got something like 7.999989 bits of entropy, uh, you know, out of a possible eight. So as much as anybody. But what's very cool is I wrote my own Rheindahl algorithm that is my own Rheindahl cipher in assembly language. And then they asked, but just because, you know, that's me. Um, then they said, how many, how fast is your password generator? Well, it generated, I don't remember the number now, but it was like 81 million um, bytes of pseudo random data per second. And on their chart, it is the fastest pseudo random number generator there is. Really? Yeah. So wow. there's assembly language for you. Wow. Really? Yeah, it's the fastest one there is. <laughs> That's cool. That's really cool. Um, he also wants to, he says, he knows you're a Windows guy, but he wants to know if the Travel Star uh, would work in his MacBook Pro. Um, I'm, I, uh, my mission. Go ahead. Um, my mission is to nail this down. I tried to do some research so that I would have an answer to this question by the time you you posed it to me, Leo, and I cannot find any documentation over on the Hitachi site, so I'm going to have to get a hold of someone. I'm sure it uses a Windows client to interface with the hardware. 
Well, it can't because the entire drive oh, is encrypted. Of course, which so it's going to be in BIOS. Exactly. Ah. It's going to have to be something that is done at, in the BIOS when the drive is initially being booted. And I think that the way they would do it is that they would simply use the standard security technology that is a part of the ATA spec to you know wh where you lock the drive rather than locking it they would now use that they would take the the password you give the drive hash it into a long key probably a 256 bit key which is what the Rheindahl AES cipher wants although it can it, it can operate in 128 192 or 256 bits but i think i remember seeing that it's a 256 bit key and that that's what they would use it's got to be done at the bios time but I'm wondering if there's a recent extension to the ATAPI spec, which is the, the, the protocol used to talk to the drive, which supports bulk data encryption. That's what I'm going to see if I can track down, in which case you might need BIOS support right. in order to get the benefit rather than being able to swap it in. Anyway, I've got one of these drives. It's it's on my list, as he says. I've got a long list, but I'm going to see if I can uh, track this down. It sounds like something Apple would have to support in its in its EFI boot stuff. Don't know yet. Yeah, interesting. Edward and Fort Collins, because Apple does use I'm I'm sure standard uh, a tappy controllers. So if it isn't a tappy yes. spec, shouldn't yes. be a problem. Edward in Fort Collins, Colorado, raises a very good question about virtual machine use. He says, my wife is stationed in Korea for a year. Before she left, I installed VMware Player with an Ubuntu appliance for her to do her banking on. Oh, that's cool. What a good idea. She asked the question, if she has a keylogger on XP or some other form of spyware, can the hacker see what she's doing in VMware since it's running with Windows at the same time? Oh. That's why it's such a good question, Leo. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, and the answer is, she's probably vulnerable. Depends um, on the keystroke logger, of course. Well, exactly. But his point is exactly right. And this is why I wanted to bring the question up, because it's very good. What we've talked about using virtual machine technology for is containment. That is, you would, in a VM, you're containing something bad from getting out. Right. You're not letting it modify your global machine, your, your host machine. You're keeping it contained. His question is, what if something, essentially, he's inverted that. He's wanting to use the VM to protect what goes on in the VM. Right. The problem is, it's running, it's on Windows, it's hosted on Windows, meaning that anything it does needs to run out through Windows. Right. So, yes, this is not a safe thing to do. We don't know, again, that, that a keylogger that exists today could do this. Certainly the VMware system is putting um, keyboard and drive and network drivers into your system in order to do, um, in, in order to, uh, to achieve its goals, but there's nothing to prevent something in the kernel from, from chaining onto that driver and, and ca well, capturing keystrokes from, from the VM. When the VM window is active though, uh, does it capture the key scans directly? Does it go through Windows at all? Doesn't the v doesn't the the VM window capture it? Well, there is no directly. There, it's going to be down in the kernel, and there could be drivers in the kernel. And VMware does install drivers, but drivers can be intercepted. I'm just wondering if the window's active. 
Does it bypass? Essentially, the way way keystrokes work is the the scan codes are sent from the keyboard, uh, as you say, to a driver that then interprets them as keystrokes. Is the Windows driver active when the VM window is uh, active? Yeah, it is. Yeah, there's no, oh, way yeah. Turn, there's no way to turn that off. Well, there, there, so when you exactly. switch the context, you're not switching all the OS context. You're still operating within the OS. Exactly, and in fact, the installation of VMware's acceleration drivers is optional. So the VMware will run without installing any of its own special drivers. Those just make things go better. So, so without them, you're really vulnerable, but even with them, you're still in Windows kernel. Windows kernel is hosting this session, and you're needing to run through the kernel and through Windows drivers in order to talk to the hardware. So the, no, the real takeaway from this is inverting the model. That is, that is, wanting to do something secure in a VM to keep it from Windows is not at all the same as doing something dangerous in the VM that you want to keep out from uh, out of modifying Windows. Those are two very different things. One works, the other one really doesn't. So the way to do this uh, properly would it be make a uh, a boot, boot CD, CD. Yeah, a Linux, exactly a Linux Live CD. Yes. Uh, and if she has to save her banking information, then that that you'd have to solve that problem separately. She could do that maybe with a dongle, for right, example, or an encrypted drive or whatever. Right. Uh, but yeah, that would be very secure then. Yep. Unless there's a hardware keystroke logger. Oh, you're case, right. In that case, you're out of luck. <laughs> they got you. If they if they got in so deep that they put in replaced your keyboard or put a, something in between your keyboard and the computer to log keystrokes, you're out of luck. <laughs> yep. Which is why even if you used a, a boot CD in the library, it still could Sounds be Sounds like maybe she's using a laptop. He says she's stationed uh, in Korea for a year. Before she left, I installed VMware. Yeah. So CD sound, would be perfect. CD would be yeah. the way to do this. A CD is, is the great solution. Yeah. Yes. Rob Strading in uh, Hudsonville, Michigan has a great question for encrypted hard drive users. Want to know if uh, the decrypted contents of the encrypted information on a sector in your new Hitachi hard drive makes it easier to find the AES key to decrypt the entire thing. Hmm, interesting. I ask because in any Windows installation, the boot sector of the hard drive is always a constant. Back in the day, IOSYS and MS-DOS.SYS were written in, in uh, loan locations, known locations of the drive. In modern times, it's the NTFS bootloader. Would it not make the encryption infinitely easier to crack for that sector and then the entire drive? It was a really good question. Um, Boy, they're asking we, tough ones today. It is, yeah, we got great listeners, Leo. Um, the As a consequence of the way the encryption is being done, there is really no solution other than brute force the, the the reason he asked the question and i assume he's been a listener for a while is we have talked about many instances where the knowing what the so-called plain text that is the non-encrypted data is knowing what that is would allow you to attack the key because there are there well, in fact this was one of the main weaknesses in the original implementation of Wi-Fi encryption the web encryption was that many of the of the contents of the packets were not changing web used a pseudo random sequence generator to generate scrambling data essentially xoring pseudo random data with the plain text and the problem was all you had to do was reor that, re-XOR that with the plain text, and you got back the sequence. Right, right. 
Um, AES, that is the Rheindahl cipher, is a symmetric cipher. So, and, and it's a block cipher that takes 128 bits at a time and maps it using the key, the, the secret key. It maps that 128 bits to a different pattern of 128 bits. So it's certainly the case that, for example, take the partition sector. If we're encrypting the hard drive, we're encrypting the entire hard drive. So the very first sector on the hard drive is the partition sector. Well, we know a lot of what the contents of the partition sector is in the drive. So so essentially, you would know what the first 128 bits are and you would uh, th- that is of the partition sector and you would know what what they map to in the encrypted um uh the encrypted case that is what they encrypt to through Rheindahl. um however um you quickly get lost because Rheindahl uses, and I was referring to this last week, the so-called CBC, the cipher block chaining. When you actually employ symmetric encryption, you don't simply encrypt each block of 128 bits by itself. You, you take the result of the previous encryption and you, you XOR that with the plain text before the next encryption. And, and actually, I have a diagram of that process down at the bottom of the passwords page now, grc.com slash passwords, if someone wants to see sort of a schematic of how that looks. In order to make this work, there is an what's called the initialization vector that I referred to also last week, and that'll be an additional 128 bits of secret data and and so you have that 128 bits plus the 256 bit key and essentially it means that you need to do a brute force attack even though you know what the some part of the plain text and some part of the encrypted data is the the, the way this mixes the data together means that immediately as you start encrypting blocks of data you you the you're you're reduced to a plane to a brute force attack and that means you've got what is it 156 plus um i mean 256 plus 128 is 384 bits of of data of of secret data that you need to brute force attack and you know have a nice day <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah, I think part of the reason he asked the question is because uh, in encryption techniques like uh, DVD encryption, CSS, the key has to, same thing with HD uh, DVDs, AACS, the key has to live on the player. And so maybe that's why he's asking this question. Is, yes, is, well, and that, that's a very good point. The, the, the key has to live on the player or it's often, as we know, it's discovered in RAM because it's being used on the fly to, to decrypt be. the data. It has to live somewhere some, to, to, to work. Right, it's, and that's one of the things that's different about hard drive encryption is that the drive itself does not have the key. It doesn't know the key. It needs to receive the key when it's booted up and initialized, but it, it never stores it anywhere on itself. It lives 
on the drive where you can't get it out and it's being used to encrypt and decrypt the data on the fly. But where's the key? Is it in BIOS? Um, the key, um, the, 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 well, it, it, it has depends to be somewhere upon, on the hardware, right? Well, and that's where the trusted platform module comes in. Ah, okay. Be, because it's going to be in the trusted platform module where, again, you cannot get to it. We hope. <laughs> I would never, I would never assume it can't be gotten to. Hackers are very determined. Yep. Uh, but there's less incentive. I mean, really, frankly, I mean, it's one thing to figure out how to crack DVD encryption. It's another thing to figure out how to crack hard, crack hard drive encryption. Who, well, and, 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 and also remember that, um, for example, the user has many modes of, of operation that they could use their fingerprint scan to unlock the trusted platform module, which then unlocks the key that goes into the hard drive to unlock the drive. Or if they wanted more security, they could not use a trusted platform module and have to type in, manually type in their password every single time they start up or resume the drive. And that, and so, so they would be typing in the password. That then gets hashed to generate the long key, which the drive uses. So literally, you could set up your laptop so that it is not stored anywhere in the hardware. Mm. Interesting. So, I mean, it, it can be really secure. It's pretty darn secure. All right, Steve, we've come to the end of this uh, fascinating episode. Boy, I thank our uh, listeners for sending in such great questions. Fascinating. Tough ones, too. Make really, and, and they cover the gambit. I mean, they're all just, all just you know, a large range of questions. Yeah, they do indeed. As long as we're talking security, let's remind you that our uh, sponsor, the great folks at Astaro, he really knows security. They are the kings. The Astaro Security Gateway is it when it comes to protecting your enterprise or your home, too. Uh, it's a piece of uh, hardware, a small box, looks like a router. In fact, I just got an email from a guy who just installed uh, the 110 and is just thrilled with it. He said, and <laughs> he said, were you able to configure it yourself? I guess he's not a, a techie guy. Uh, he said, I, it wasn't completely obvious how to do it, but fortunately, I, I called the Astaro, and they walked me through it, and they were great. So that's another additional feature of Astaro. They really do support their stuff. It's the best of breed of open source and commercial software protecting you in so many ways. Of course, you get the traditional network protection, firewall, remote access, VPN, intrusion protection. It's got a full IDS. Uh, by the way, the VPN is SSL. Uh, uh, enabled as well as IPsec L2TP over IPsec and PPTP tunneling with SSL. So you really get a, a whole host of ways you can VPN. But that's not all. You've got content protection. You've got antivirus. Actually, two different kinds of uh, email uh, antivirus scans. And then a third antivirus scan for the web. You get anti-spyware, control of things like instant messenger and P2P, uh, web filtering. You've got uh, transparent encryption for your email, so the uh, desktops don't even have to know they're being encrypted in and out. It's just on and on. It's a, it, I highly recommend you try it out. You can get it, a free sample, a free demo in your office by calling 877, the number 4 A-S-T-A-R-O. And yes, they'll help you set it up. 877, the number 4 A-S-T-A-R-O. Or you can go to astaro.com slash security now if you want to download a copy. And by the way, home users... No longer a charge for the home license, the non-commercial license, which includes everything, including the updates, uh, all subscriptions, all features. 
that is a really great deal. They used to charge 79 euros a year for that, and now they're giving it to home users, non-commercial users, absolutely free. Because they know when you try it, you're going to go into the war- the office and say, hey, we ought to be using a Starro at work. 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. And I just was looking on VMware's uh, You know, I got VMware working on my um, Mac now, the VMware cool. Fusion. It's great. And they have an Astaro appliance. I think it's the top, one of the top five appliances for download. So you can try it that way as well. A-S-T-A-R-O dot com or call 877-4-ASTARO. And we thank Astaro for supporting security now for so long. We really appreciate their help. Yeah, I, the VMware Fusion just came out. And I really um, am very impressed. In fact, in some benchmarks, it's faster than Parallels. So ah. that's another way you can run Windows on your Mac. All right, Steve, we've wrapped this puppy up and tied a bow on it and I think think we're done we'll have a podcast for all of our listeners uh, without fail next week yes I'll see you in Vancouver next week which is going to be right on thanks for coming in we'll see you next time on Security Now Security Now